I don't really like being a squisher. I mean, of lantern flies. A lot of times I spot them out of the corner of my eye and leave them be, which in the northeast of the U.S. where I live can be a recipe for neighborly scorn. Don't you know they're invasive, people will think, glaring at me from a window. But they're pretty bugs. And I think sometimes, how long before this thing labeled invasive just is part of the ecosystem? And at that point, when undernourished birds, for example, start to rely on them for food, have I saved some fruit trees at the expense of birds and bats? I'm not sure. This isn't my area of expertise. My question is about when things graduate from being invaders of an environment to being that environment. I'm not arguing that letting lanternflies live is the right thing. It's just an analogy. But on a walk with my dog recently, coming upon a squished corpse who shared the sidewalk, I wondered whether the lanternfly would be a good mascot for artificial intelligence. Beautiful, but threatening, seemingly ubiquitous to some, but still only really affecting the lives of a few. Invasive in the narrative we're most often exposed to, and yet quite native to others. Let me know what you think of the analogy by getting in touch. If you leave a comment when the episode is posted on facebook.com slash no such thing pod or on LinkedIn, search my name. You'll find episode posts there as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts. A bridge too far? I don't know. Meet my guest. Um, Hi, I'm Eric Wang. I'm the vice president of AI at Turnitin. I've been at Turnitin for about five years. And in that time, we've built AI into all different aspects of Turnitin's products. We think a lot about how AI can transform and improve education for students, for teachers, for institutions, and how academic integrity is going to change in the world of AI. What I'm not thinking about AI, I'm the parent to a five-year-old daughter, and I ride a lot of mountain bikes. This conversation was a good example of why I do this show. I had a vague idea of what we'd accomplish in this dialogue, but what delighted me by the end was how much I'd learned from Eric and how clearly the shape of our understanding in the world, more broadly speaking, can result from a practice of dialogue. People like Eric, partners in the effort to move forward in the digital age with human care and development as a grounding goal, stoke my own motivation to keep pushing. Eric's deep background in AI helped me refine the mental map of AI and machine learning that for me is still rendering. I hope it does for you as well. If this show has found its way into your regular feed and you value the conversations it brings to you, I hope you'll take the few minutes required to offer a five-star review and ensure that pod platforms recommend it to others looking for a community like ours. Enjoy the show. This is No Such Thing a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. I do want to start by uh, having you tell us a little bit about your rise to leadership in education technology, because your background is interesting to me and hopefully lends credibility to our audience as we have this conversation. Uh, like I said, I want to go I want to go deep and wide. Yeah, so absolutely. Tell me how you got to this moment. <laughs> It's a funny story and it's a very serendipitous story, which is important. Um, So when I graduated from the Ohio State University in 2006, um, I honestly, I didn't really know what to do with my life. 
I'd done some internships, really enjoyed them, but I kind of knew I didn't want to get a job. I wasn't ready for that. Um, so instead, I went to Duke to get a master's degree. And it's kind of a long story, but I more or less fell backwards into a PhD research lab. I said, you know, I wanted to do some research and I'd done undergrad research. So so I emailed some professors and the first one that emailed me back was um, Professor Larry Karen, who, um, if you're in the AI field, is, is fairly well known. I had no idea who he was at the time. Um, and they were doing something called machine learning, which was also something I had no idea what that meant at the time. But I thought, well, you're going to pay me a grad student salary to watch basketball and not have to go in the real world. I'm in. Right. Um, and, and I tell that story because when I look back on it, I realize it's one of so many lucky breaks I got mm. where the universe sort of broke my way. Um, and every single time that's happened, whether it's been a great mentor, whether it's been someone who took a chance on me one way or another, like uh, like Larry did, uh, it propelled me forward. And I kind of started getting the realization that, you know, luck isn't distributed equally. It's not distributed as equally as we'd like. And education, I started really feeling like education is kind of one of the keys to to spread the peanut butter a little bit wider. Mm. Right? Um, so, so I've always been fascinated by the power of technology and AI. Um, after I got my PhD, because of funding reasons and, and whatnot, I spent some time working for the government in various research labs. So that was when I really started getting exposed into the really, really super advanced large scale AI. Mm. This was stuff that would be child's play today, but at the time, you know, it was th these were some pretty important steps forward. Um, around 2015, I decided to take up my passion for education and, and technology, and I joined Chegg. And at the time, Chegg was transitioning from having really disrupted the textbook uh, rental space mm. um, or bringing textbook rental and disrupting publishing. And they were moving toward that student uh, experience, the digital platform that they're known for today. Um, so I was with Chegg kind of through that transformation, and it was a bumpy but really fun three years. Um, when, you know, the opportunity came up to join Turnitin and obviously being in education by now, I knew who they were and Turnitin mm -hmm. is, is a force in education. Uh, it really felt like the right move. Um, I realized the importance of academic integrity, of truth and of transparency and how important that was to pedagogy. Um, and it felt like the right opportunity to try to make a difference in that way. Mm. So that kind of brings me here. Um, in the five years at Turnitin, we've continue to drive transformation. And uh, at the risk of sounding a little corporate, I'm, I'm really proud of what we've done and, and bringing AI from something that was kind of siloed into one product into something that's very central across all of our products. Hmm. I'm sure we'll talk more about it. But um, it's been a real journey, both from a technical standpoint and from you know a philosophical standpoint as well, helping the company and helping the industry um, and ed tech and educators all around the world think about AI and, and help facilitate that conversation. Hmm. Um, it's a changing world. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where we are today. And that's what I spend my days doing. Go back to pre Chegg. Um, is this you, does this, does this sound familiar? 15 billion parameter, three layer neural network on the YFCC 100 million data set. Yes, that was work that we did at uh, Lawrence Livermore, 
was, um, boy, those were, those were the, those were crazy days we had at our disposal. Um, at the time, one of the largest supercomputers that could handle deep learning Hmm. and, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, the idea of then, uh, it's just, gosh, I don't even know when that was. It was 2013, something like that, 2013, 2014. Um, the idea of a billion parameter neural network, I mean, billion with a B, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, your eyes went wide, which is now, you know, I don't get out of, we don't get out of bed for anything less than 100 billion parameters. Mm-hmm. But uh, back then, being able to push a billion parameters and simultaneously, you know, compute gradients across that was, that, that was, that was pretty, pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of the work that I did there, actually, you know, what's interesting is that was the first time I really got into deep learning. Up to that point, I was really working in something called um, non-parametric Bayesian models. And then I still love them. They're mathematically, they're so beautiful at the risk of alienating people. They're far more mathematically elegant than deep learning. Um, but they were more computationally intensive and more complicated and, and in some ways more limited. Um, so yeah, they kind of ran their course and that's what I got my PhD and they, they ran their course and I got to see, you know, what's interesting is I, that uh, pretty early in my career, I got to see the thing I did my PhD and become obsolete. Mm. Um, that was a weird experience, right? Knowing something and then kind of realizing like, Oh yeah, this doesn't, uh, doesn't hold up much anymore. Yeah. Um, I still love it though. The, the math is, is just beautiful. Mm. That is a, f- I'm stuck on what you said about your PhD, but that kind of is, I mean, just, yeah, based on what you just said about now hundred billion parameters um, is yeah. more standard. It seems like that's, that was important training though, right? In, in a certain, in a certain way, you getting used to the idea that um, this thing is going to evolve so fast that your expertise is always going to be a kind of a step behind what you've just trained the machine to do, or you, you know what I'm saying? Like in a sense, yeah. you had to, you had to get pretty comfortable with obsolescence. Uh, oh, probably yeah. better than than now, right? I, absolutely. I think um, you know the, the pace of change that we see today. Um, I'm glad that I'm very comfortable with change and and with uncertainty. But the pace of change we've seen in the last year, in the last six months, is unlike anything I've ever experienced. And I think it's true for, for most people in the tech sector. What's been interesting is, you know, when, when, I, um, when I stick my head out of the silo of the Silicon Valley, which is obviously a buzz in AI talk, and I, mm-hmm. and I check in with friends and colleagues um, from other parts of the country, uh, other parts of the world, um, they're much less aware, right? Their, their lives are not wholly defined by AI. It, mm. it hasn't, that level of impact hasn't reached them. Or alternatively, you know, it might reach them and they may not even know it because the, the change will be so all-encompassing and also really invisible in, in a lot of ways. Um, so, yeah, I think for me, I, I look at it and I just think being able to see under the hood and, and recognize how quickly the machinery is evolving and, and improving. It's, it's really, it's really staggering. Hmm. So before we move on, what I'm interested in is 
painting a better picture, not just through this episode, but through a series of conversations I've been having around AI. One of the worries that I have at this moment in AI is that we've we've narrowed into this technology, you know, these large language models and this technology of kind of this moment. But part of what I was hoping you could help me do is paint the picture mm-hmm. of, you know, if this is the tip of the iceberg, how big is the iceberg in your mind? Like to um, put differently, uh, how nascent do you think mm-hmm. um, we are in the longer arc of the potential of AI mm-hmm. to yeah. work with purpose? I feel like you could have asked a bigger question. That, that's that's not an ambitious question at all, Mark. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I think when I look at the AI that we have today, there's something that stands out, which is they're all built on this thing called transformers. GPT is generalized pre-trained transformer. Um, transformers have been around with us for a long time, uh, half a decade at this point, maybe longer. They all started with a paper called Attention is All You Need. Um, beautiful paper. Um, fantastic authors. I, I, one of my favorites. And um, I, the transformers that exist today in GPT 3.5 that probably exist in GPT-4, although no one really knows, and powering all these other LLMs, they're not that meaningfully different, right? So when you talk about how much more evolution is going to happen, I'm not necessarily sure I see it in the model architecture. Hmm. And, you know, the reality is we're kind of realizing the models are getting smarter, smarter in quotes, but The models are getting smarter. They're evolving as a function of the data that they're seeing, as a function of how they're being trained. Um, The big breakthroughs that we've been seeing, in my opinion, are really a function of engineering. Being able to train a 170 billion parameter model, which GPT 3.5 roughly is, or at least was, um, is not trivial by any stretch of the imagination. You have hundreds of GPUs running in parallel, in lockstep, computing gradients, talking to one another. You have to aggregate all of those gradients, essentially doing calculus on the fly, decentralized, and then pulling it all together. Um, Sometimes GPUs break. Sometimes the software crashes. And if one crashes, you don't want to throw everything away. So how do you recover, right? So there's a lot of engineering that goes into that work. But what that unlocked for us is the ability for these deep neural networks, these transformers, to read the whole internet. Hmm. I'm over, I'm over trivializing, but um, essentially that's what they're doing, right? The sum total of human knowledge encoded in the internet, which is a large part, but not all of human knowledge. Um, and the thing about deep neural networks and transformers in particular is that they have very high entropic capacity. And so what that means is they can keep learning. They don't saturate. Historical AI models, the stuff that I cut my teeth on way back in the day, they would saturate. And what that means is at a certain point, you can keep feeding it data, but your your error isn't going to keep dropping. Your The model doesn't keep getting better. It's every parameter that it can use has already been used. It cannot get closer to some mythical zero error state. Hmm. But a transformer, on the other hand, the deep neural networks, 
they can, at least to a much, much, much larger degree. And so when you build these large networks and you build the engineering infrastructure to read billions upon billions of documents and trillions upon trillions of word tokens, the models keep learning. They keep finding patterns. They keep encoding patterns and being able to generalize from those patterns. And so what you end up with is this machine that feels incredibly human, but it feels incredibly human. I think I'm probably going to get flamed for this on um, <laughs> the social medias. I think it feels incredibly human because most of what possibly could be said, could be done, could be thought. This doesn't mean new knowledge necessarily, but most of I'm not putting together a sequence of words that hasn't been said by somebody else before. There's been billions of people, many of them encoding those words into the Internet. Mm-hmm. And so those patterns, because they're they're accessible instantly by this machine, um, this machine has a worldview that's so different, so orthogonal, so impossibly broad compared to what a human does, that when it re- retrieves these patterns and executes small generalizations on them, it seems like magic. It seems intuitive. It feels alive. Mm. That's just because we didn't know, you and I, as humans in our myopic little world, we didn't know somebody else already said this, had this thought. Um, so, so where can we go from here? I think it's going to be bounded primarily by the data set. We're already training on more or less the entire web crawl. There's, I think the improvements are going to come. Uh, some of the, one of the areas of improvements is really in leveraging data sets that are not necessarily available um, on the open internet. So I work for Turnitin, uh, you know, shameless plug or not, I'm going to try to be very objective here. I work for Turnitin and, you know, in our 25 years of understanding student writing, um, we had this data set that we safeguard extremely carefully. We, and only we, and forever only we will have, you know, this is something that, that we use to help protect academic integrity worldwide. And this data set also allows us to understand student writing at a clarity and at a scale that isn't available to an LLM. Right. And um, so so data sets like that, and there are other ones that, that other companies and organizations have data sets, those, these very specialized data sets, they allow um, us to build systems that can, for a particular task, outperform an LLM. An LLM can do these big general things. They can seemingly reason. They can think through a lot of stuff. But um, when it really comes to becoming an expert in something, you're, you're going to need to lean on data that may not necessarily be available to it. So Turnitin's data set that it's reading from is exclusively academic writing? You know, yes, but it's not just academic scientific research writing. It's right. students for the last quarter century have trusted Turnitin and institutions have trusted Turnitin to bring in the papers and check to make sure that no plagiarism has, mm. has happened. And when it does to highlight it and help teachers make the right decisions on how to go forward and how to have the conversations and follow on conversations with students. Mm. In doing that, we have collected that data set also allows us to really understand student writing and student writing is interesting, you know, because writing is so critical to learning. It's, it's, it's such an important part of becoming a critical thinker. Um, and learning to write is part of that productive struggle. 
that that learners have to go through. The statistics, now it's kind of circling back to the machine learning part, the statistics of and the linguistic traits of a writer that is learning to express themselves, learning who they are and finding their own voice, that's very different than crawling Wikipedia. Mm. They're all language and we can understand them, but there's a there's a this really amazing, wonderful, rich messiness of student writing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we found is LLMs out of the box and a lot of these language models out of the box, they really struggle with student writing. Student writing is messy and it's messy on purpose because the human thought process is messy and you're you're seeing sort of the sausage being made, right, of someone learning to write, of becoming a better writer. Um, when we first started doing AI on, on some of Turnitin's, um, it's a funny story, yeah, when we first started doing language modeling on some of Turnitin's stuff, my first instinct was, I don't know, let's just use some off-the-shelf stuff, it'll probably work. And I was wildly wrong. Mm. I mean, I, I was looking at these results and just being like, this model that I feel like should work is giving me absolute garbage. Mm. And it took a long time. Um, someone smarter than me would have taken less time, but it took me a long time to wrap my head around that fact that it, it's language isn't all the same, that, that what we're working with is something very, very different and something that needs to be treated with a lot of care and a lot of thought. Have, have you, uh, I'm going to ask the question this way, but, but, uh, of course you've thought about it, but have you thought about how you would have used this technology when you were 12 and 14 years old. And I asked this question mm -hmm. because we started by talking about Bruce Springsteen and your 11 year old self and being a child of immigrants and hearing language in the home in a particular way. And I'm just, I'm curious as we paint the ideal, right. For Turnitin software, mm -hmm. right. How would Turnitin have worked for you as a relatively new to English, um, you know, still you, you would use the word messy, right? Like the other thing that's messy is just the human experience. So how you arrived at language and how you're piecing together the different languages, you know, into writing how would Turnitin have worked for you as a freshman or sophomore in high school, do you think? In, in an mm -hmm. ideal world, like teacher, you know, the interaction, how did it all work for you if we could go back to the future and, and you had, you had this technology? Do you mean, do you mean going back to high school with, uh, with the AI technology that we have? Yeah. So, he, so Eric is, I have a really hard time imagining that you wouldn't have been a ninth grader who was like, AI, yes. Uh, <laughs> let me use this to improve, you know, how I write. Um, would that have been you? Absolutely. Well, look, let's, let's take a step back. So yeah. first off, uh, full disclosure. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. I love technology. I love using new stuff. Um, it's something I'm passionate about it, you know, um, but I think there's something interesting. So turn it in, you know, the thing that we're known for mm -hmm. is helping teachers, helping institutions highlight when copy paste might've happened. Now we mm -hmm. do a lot more than that now, but that's kind of the thing that we're known for. And I think even seven year old me having, you know, come from China 
you know, learning the language would have said copying someone else's work without attribution. I mean, I probably wouldn't have used language like that, but copying <laughs> someone else's work without telling someone that you did that didn't feel right. Yeah. I, I think I think we all know that, right? As, mm-hmm. as human beings, it, it, that's not that, that's not a thing you should do. Mm-hmm. The thing about AI is that, and and the technology that we have today, these LLMs, it, it's not clear to me that their use is necessarily bad or should be forbidden, right? I mean, clearly there's cases when you're learning to write, when you want to limit the access to to technology like mm-hmm. this. Certainly, like you want to go through that productive struggle. We talked about that. Um, but the reality is, I would hope that my school would have looked at this technology and said, AI fluency is the future. Mm. Our students and um, our you know, as they matriculate through our institution, through our K-12 school, through our college, grad school, the employers that they're going to go work for are going to expect that they know how to talk to this technology, that they know how to how to use it mm-hmm. to the best ability. Right. That, that's it's not just uh, it's not wrong to use AI. It is an expectation mm. that you will use this technology, but use it well, use it ethically, use it um, efficiently. Right. Um, And so as you as you look through kind of both sides of that lens, you realize just how transformative this technology is. So I would have I probably would have used it in ninth grade using your example. Look, I'd like to believe that I was morally, you know, uh, uh, superior, superior and Mm -hmm. and would have absolutely used it for good. Mm -hmm. Would I completely have? Probably not. But I probably I would have really liked if the school said, hey, this technology is here, let's sit down, let's talk about really how to use this well. Um, when is it appropriate to use? When is it not appropriate to use? And let's analyze when does it actually help you? Because LLMs actually are bad at a lot of things, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's the key to remember is they're seemingly good at everything, but they're not uniformly good at everything. Right. Um, and, under, and each one's actually different. Claude's good at some things and Bard's good at other things, despite what you read on, you know, the social medias and and GPTs are the 3.5s and 4s are good at some things and just recognizing them as tools and as thought partners. Um, that's a vital skill to have. And mm. I, I would have. I hope I would have learned to, you know, uh, uh, learn those skills and how to navigate that. Yeah. Be- one of the things that I've been doing just trying, I've been searching TikTok a lot for like students who are asking questions about how to cheat and how to use AI. Mm -hmm. And that's been a really fascinating experience for me because I see a lot of students, a use case that I hadn't thought a lot about, but a student who knows English needs to be able to write academically in English, but is not yet writing academically, really smart in 10th grade saying, here's my idea tell me what it would sound like as a proficient native English writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then using that comparison to refine their work. Now, if they did that and ran it through software, you know, whatever they get, like, oh, that's 75% likelihood that they somewhere mm-hmm. along the way used AI in this process. Uh, a great teacher would look at that and be like, wow, what a 
you know, what a powerful teaching assistant. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So so that's that's part of um part of my interest is is how do the tools like the ones that you're trying to train leapfrog over this moment where all we want to do is catch kids cheating and begin to empower young people, adult learners, uh, you know, we don't have to get into adult literacy rates in in the U.S., let alone, you know, countries um, that are smaller and have less. So I guess my question is, um, you know, it, it sounds like there's an ethos for you personally that we be using these things as tools for empowerment, tools for learning. Um, how pervasive do you feel like that is at Turnitin generally? Like, is that, do you feel like that's what it is y'all are trying to do? Um, I'll stop there. Yeah. 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 No, that's a, that's a, really great framing. Um, I'll answer the last part first. Yeah. As a company, when we embarked on bringing a GPT visualizer, let's call it to, you know, uh, to, to, to market, um, for our customers to use, it never once occurred to us that this is a anti-cheating tool. Mm. Now, interesting. It can be used. Certainly, if you tell, if you say, I want you to not use GPT and this tool finds something and it, you know, it works really, really well, then sure, it, it finds a case where a student didn't follow the, the instructions of, of the instructor. Um, I tend to look at it, though, the broader use case, what you're alluding to is about transparency. It's actually about trust. So when a student uses AI to help write something, and oftentimes it's a very fundamentally good use case, like you said, I want a really thoughtful thought partner to just bounce ideas off of and get some phrases and get some inspiration and maybe some parts make it in the final draft, maybe not, right? But mm-hmm. um, I don't think that's necessarily bad. In fact, I feel like that that's probably a pretty empowering use case. Um, the student knows that they use GPT. Mm. The teacher doesn't. So I think if you were going to go teach, if you were going to say, hey, you know what? I want to know when you've used AI, not because I think you're breaking the rules, but because I want to know without you having to cite everything and 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 tell me this was GPT. And I just want to know, look, this chunk, it looks like, yeah, you used AI to write this paragraph. I understand what you did. And the AI did an okay job, but I know you could have done better. I know that this is AI and it loses some of the punch that I know you were building for. And the AI didn't quite deliver for you. And you didn't take it to that next level. You didn't take what it gave you and blend it with your own thoughts and and give it your own voice. Right. Mm. And so let's sit down. Let's talk about that. Let's let's talk about and let's reflect on whether using AI and leaning on it this heavily was really the right call for this paragraph, right? So, so AI style, using it, how you use AI, how you lean on it, how you modify it or not modify it is actually now going to be part of someone's writing style, someone's comp- composition and thought style. Um, and that's going to be something that we want to teach. So 
so a tool that helps you that helps a teacher at a glance understand when those AI chunks are and can, as they're reading through a paper, they can just say, oh, "Okay, I see what they did. That was really good. Yeah, they, they used that's exactly the right use of AI. They hmm. they came up with a powerful thought, a powerful argument. They structured it well, and then they said, "Great, now AI carry through the rest of this argument." And then they moved on to the next point, which it also looks like they did by hand because you know they, they articulated the next phase of their argument. Um, you know, on the flip side too. I could see a situation where a teacher, because they want to teach AI fluency as a skill, they may not want to see AI score of zero on a document. Mm-hmm. They might actually want to say, I told my students to use AI in a certain way, and I want to I want to see the places where they actually did that. It just makes my grading easier. At that point, it's not even an integrity tool anymore. It's a grading pedagogy and potentially, you know, aiding feedback kind of mm-hmm. tool. So we really saw what we're building as the beginnings, and it is the beginning. We have so much more in the labs and coming down the pipeline, but we really see what we're building as enabling that whole set of conversations. And yeah, the, the, the academic integrity piece, the cheating piece, that's not not part of it, but it's a subset. Hmm. Can I can I call back? Um to the the technical part of the conversation that we were sure. having because I feel like you just answered three questions in one and um, okay so let me tell you how I used AI this morning um, you on your LinkedIn profile you have a great banner image <clears throat> and I had looked at your profile probably 10 times easily without noticing the banner image. And I thought, wow, this guy took a screenshot and then cropped it of this, um, you know, a snippet of code and a series of numbers. And I was like, I'm interested. So I copied the image. I put it into a Google image search. It stripped out the text for me. I took the text. I put it in a chat GPT. And I had a conversation with GPT about epochs. Am I saying that Mm -hmm. right? Uh, epochs, yeah, yeah. E- epochs. Although I don't even know if I'm saying it right, but yes. Well, GPT E-P-O-C-H, told me. Epochs, e- right, GPT told me it was epoch, rhymed with uh, what did it say? Um, it could be very well. Yeah. Yeah, it broke was the was the second word it gave me. Rhymes with this, this, and it was broke. Anyway, so epoch. Um. So I had a really good conversation with it about this snippet of code and why it was interesting and. You know, I was like, man, this is going to enrich my conversation with Eric because I feel like I better understand something he values. I also, I think if I understand what an epoch is, um, it says a lot about what's motivating your work in this space. Because if I understand it right, Mm -hmm. an epoch is, and, and forgive, you know, forgive the way I'm putting this, but I'm, I'm bouncing it off of you. I'm learning in the open here. Yeah, yeah. An epoch is a the way that a program traverses a learning landscape mm-hmm. in order to better take in a set of data yeah. that will eventually enable it to answer questions more precisely. And so when I traverse that landscape the first time, it might take 
you know, we'll say an hour. It's a small data set. I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. An hour. The second yeah, yeah. second epoch might be less. And ultimately, what I understand is that the goal is that that then becomes knowledge, and it can it, you know it it continues yeah. to traverse other data in order to inform yet new questions based on the f the first set of of data traversals if mm -hmm. if that if i can make up make up uh, with so how am i doing so far you know uh it, it, you're doing a fantastic job of i'm actually in my mind taking notes of some of the words and and terms that you're using cuz i think you're doing a fantastic job explaining some of the nuances of model training uh, to to your audience who may not necessarily be familiar with it. So I think I can right, let me let me riff off this a little bit. So yeah. in order to kind of understand that image, um, and so for for um, those of you kind of listening, it, the, the image I believe, gosh, I haven't thought about that image in a while. It's um, it, it's the command line output actually of a model as it's executing training its training run and it's making passes through the data set and it's counting the, 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 the there's um, a bar that essentially you're seeing that bar move across the screen as it's sort of tracking progress mm. as sweeping through a data set and to understand what that kind of means um, when a machine when an AI system is training when it learns what it actually is doing is pretty uh, simple is I'm, I'm, I shouldn't use the word simple that but but I'm going to um, and this is true of every AI system that exists from the most simple regression model that you might run all the way to the GPT whatever's mm -hmm. that, that exists today they all follow the same basic rule they're minimizing error that is all they're doing right and so what happens is you show the model a data, a piece of data. You say, take this as input, could be a set of numbers, could be some words that you can convert into numbers. Take this as input and do some math on that set of numbers and output a number on the other side. And that output number might represent a word, right? Choose word, the next word is word four, the next word is word five, whatever. And the goal of the training is to minimize that error. So the mm -hmm. first pass through the model doesn't know anything. You may have randomly initialized it. And so you pass in, let's, let's take in, let's, let's take an example. Um, if I tell you the quick brown fox and I ask you, what's the next word, right? What's the most likely next word? Well, you know what it is. It's jumped. Yeah. Right. Um, but the computer wouldn't know that. So the computer might say, well, I think the next word is submarine, mm. right? It just randomly picks a word. And then what will happen is for that data point, it'll say, whoa, you're really wrong. You are really wrong. The probability of the, the real word is jump. You picked submarine as your most probable word. Now do math. Mm -hmm. the, the math happens to be derivatives. Uh, essentially, uh, you take a derivative of the error with respect to your model's math and you move the numbers a little bit. And what will happen the next time through is the word jump will have a little bit higher probability than it did the time before. So the, the first time, jump had a probability of almost nothing. 
The second time through, the model have moved the numbers a little bit and jump might have a 2% probability. Mm. So when it goes to pick a word, it has 2% chance of picking the word jumped. And, and over time, it'll learn and learn and learn. And as those parameters in the model change, as you keep taking these derivatives, your error gets smaller and smaller. The word, the pro, in this case, the probability for the word jump gets bigger and bigger until it's almost 100%. Mm. And what happens then is you're done training. You say the model has, gosh, what's the word? Back in the day, we used the word converged. But, but your loss has stopped dropping. And uh, now you can use the model. Hmm. And because you know that your error now is really small, right? Uh, when I give you a couple of words in, the, the chances that you will pick the right next word are really good based on everything that I've seen, now you can let the model just run. Hmm. And that's what we see in GPT. What we're using it now is the model is no longer training. It is fixed in space. It's got you know all those bars on my LinkedIn, right? You've run all those. You've decided you're happy. You've stopped. And the model now, you take in a sequence of words and it outputs the next word. Hmm. Lo and behold, that next word makes a whole heck of a lot of sense for what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And the word after that, and the word after that, and the yeah. word after that. So that's what's happening when we do model training. Hmm. Here's the here's here so um here's one more analogy just to see if I've I've nailed this thing. Yeah. Uh or as as closely as I'm going to at this point. So um what I think of have you ever taken a, a live drawing class? So uh, oh. when when you take when you take fine art. Okay. Um, one of the things you learn is like is dimension and shape. And, and if you ever watch somebody even just do like a street art caricature, um, you know, they start with a pencil and they do like really general shapes that, um, you know, here's the shape and here are the ears. And it'll look at a certain point, you know, they might draw a horizontal line and a vertical line, right? And then draw ears vaguely where they are. And then they refine that drawing over the course of an hour or two hours. And then eventually they erase all of the early lines that were the general shape and and things that ultimately are not the figure, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So, so what I, what I'm thinking, thinking of when I think about training a model like this is the way that a, a fine um, artist, a, por- a portrait artist, let's say, yeah, would come at a problem, quote unquote, right, that is just a face or a, or a bust, yep. somebody's upper half, right? They could probably bypass all the vertical horizontal lines they could bypass the rough shapes of the ears they could kind of jump to the finer lines much more quickly because they've done you know they've already traversed you know their their epochs are Mm -hmm. you know are like millions you're total. You know what? I love that analogy. I was thinking of, I was thinking it through. I, di- I didn't know where you were going when you first started. And, hmm. and then as I, it clicked in my head as you started talking, I think there's so many, it's such a good analogy and there's so many layers here that work. So let me try to parse them apart. Great. Um, when you, when the model trains, we call it a model. What is it a model of? It's a hmm. model of the real world as expressed to it through the data. 
That is what the model is, right? So using your analogy, when the model starts training, at first it had no idea what the data is looking at. After a pass or two, an epoch or two through the data, it starts to get a rough idea of what the shape of the world as it's expressed in the data looks like. Right. So in a language model, it starts to, you start noticing, if you stop the model right at that point and just have it right, it maybe can kind of form three, four, five word mm-hmm. phrases that are that, that are legible. You, you, they don't mean anything together. It's gibberish altogether, but you're saying, oh, you get, it's starting to get turns of phrases. It's starting to understand basic grammar. You can see structure emerging. Yeah. Uh, as you continue to train, you start seeing uh, more complex structures emerge and you, you keep going, you keep going, especially with these larger models. And you suddenly you get we don't actually understand why. But at a certain point, you get something called emergent behaviors, mm. which is the model goes, bam, it can do math and it can reason and it can write code. And we don't actually know why this happens. This is the, this is the weirdest part. Mm. We have theories as a community, but we don't know why it happens. The other thing that you mentioned that the is um, really gets at, and it's, it's so um, it's so on point what you just called out. The field of AI has changed back in the day. We used to start with raw data and a blank model, a randomly initialized model and pray to the AI gods that a trained model would emerge out the other side as you started mm. training. These days, though, oftentimes we use what's called a foundation model. And what a foundation model is, you've probably heard of something called LAMA. That's a pretty popular foundation model Mm -hmm. for language today. LAMA is, to your point, an artist who already has a pretty good idea of how to draw a face. Hmm. You can describe a face to them and they can do a pretty good job of drawing that face. And what we do is we can take LAMA and we can take very specialized data that we, you know, for example, that we might have student writing, for example, and we can fine tune that model. Mm-hmm. And you do it really carefully. You don't want to disturb the, the knowledge that's already encoded in that model you started with, but you just want to nudge it in a certain direction. So mm-hmm. in our case, we might have a llama that's really good at understanding that messy nature of student writing that we talked about earlier. Um, and what ends up happening is suddenly you have a model that in, in so many ways can understand that particular data better. Mm. It's like it's like your analogy. You you now taken someone who can draw a face to someone who can paint like Da Vinci, mm. right? Um, and uh, and yeah, that's that's where we are. I love that analogy. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal it. I'm gonna a hundred percent gonna steal that analogy. Please, please. Um, what what is that? A uh, share and share alike. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you a Creative Commons. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Well, this podcast <laughs> is proof we came up with it. This is not an AI That's generated right. analogy. That's right. This is this is human created, authentic. That's right. I want to land. Uh, first of all, um, I could I could talk to you for a very long time, and uh, I hope that we can come back to this conversation because I have I a lot to. of questions we didn't get to. But I do want to I want to land in a place that. Um, serves you well when uh, somebody at Turnitin is like, you spent an hour talking about what? Um, <laughs> right. So, so, so Who's let's, <laughs> that's right. So let's, let's come back to Turnitin for a second. And what I'm interested to have the, 
the a, a wider audience understand is where you and leadership attorney see heading next in you know once we get beyond the sort of like hype and some of the um the hiccups of new technology which i would call the last year uh right like mm-hmm. i think i think that there are I'll, i will just say i think that there are a lot of folks who listen who see turnitin as a brand and think of like cheat catching Yep. Uh, technology, right? And I think the conversation we've had here, I hope, is a is a pretty good um, is a is a pretty good characterization of where uh, that misses, right? So, so do tell me a little bit about where you're headed, where you're excited, right? You got yeah, into yeah. this space because you wanted to spread the peanut butter. Um, so, so tell me about where the product is headed and what you're most excited about as the next chapter that gets you closer to that mission. The, the like, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, what are, what are the, uh, the epochs that matter um, next? Yeah, it's such a good question. And, you know, I, I think um, when you think about learning and where we're headed, um, you realize that AI plays such an important role, both as a skill to be learned, like we talked about, as well as helping to facilitate this new class of tooling, this new type of assessment um, that that couldn't exist before. And so we have all kinds of stuff in the labs that help, that are going to really bring that technology to the learning experience, right? Yeah. So Turnitin is, we're, we're super widely installed and most people know us for plagiarism checking. But the reality is actually we're pretty integrated into the learning management systems um, at multiple points, not just at that integrity step. Hmm. So so really excited to kind of leverage um, uh, that 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 um, our, our you know, incredible customers, you know, around the world and to help them teach in this new world. Um, so, so some things that that are really powerful, right? Like an LLM can help you grade 30 essays and give you give feedback on 30 essays with the teacher's supervision at like superhuman speeds. And you can do it with greater um, consistency, right? Because you now have a thought partner that's able to say, well, okay, you you gave this comment here for this phrase. You already read this other paper, but this other paper actually also has something pretty similar. Do you want to go back and take a look at that real quick? Right, think about a really good TA that might help you out in that case. So those are the kind of applications that we're actively thinking about. Um, I also think that, you know, when it comes down to integrity, integrity isn't one dimensional. At the root of integrity is trust and transparency. Hmm. And so when these tooling, these tools of, of detectors of helping to visualize when LLMs may have been used or AI may have been used, we are going to keep refining the language and, and the conversation that we have with our with our customers around the role of these tools in facilitating transparency. It is not about busting students because we do learning shouldn't be an adversarial experience. Right. And um and so that's an ongoing that that's just a conversation that that's going to have to keep happening. Um, and it's going to be teacher and educator led because they're the ones in the classrooms. They're the ones that 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 are teaching that next generation of, of students. So 
what are the right tools to kind of facilitate that conversation? What are the right um, learning moments, professional development? Those are those are the questions that that we're really grappling with. From a technology standpoint, we have pretty good line of sight. I mean, we have an incredible AI team, an incredible engineering team, um, great sort of partners across the technology space. So we're we're really, from a technology standpoint, I don't think those are the I mean, the challenges, but those are the fun challenges. Hmm. The, the, the big rocks are going to be, how do we move hearts and minds? Hmm. How do we move the ethos of education into a world that's defined by AI? Hmm. Um, we don't have the answer yet, but yeah. we know that that conversation is the road to that answer. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful answer. Do you, last, last quick question, do you think sure. that, I, I worry a lot and was just reading data this morning about, um, the rate at which teachers are bailing from the profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we know that that is the biggest deficit yeah. for, um, for students who are historically marginalized. And um, I wonder if you feel like moving forward, AI has the potential to, improve that metric, the metric being um, the degree to which educators feel excited and confident in their work and mm. are feel like they're kind of like continuing to grow and move to new chapters for that profession. Yeah. I think that AI certainly is one – the AI that we have today right, uh, is certainly – one of the most important potential levelers of the playing field that I've seen in my lifetime, if we make the right decisions about it. And that is a big if with a lot of asterisks after it. Um, the ability for AI to help a student who may be struggling or help a student that may not have the resources of another student, um, the, the opportunities are just endless. Um, at the same time, we can't forget that education is a social experience and uh, you can have GPT 5 million and it still doesn't, at least my opinion, it still will not replicate that experience of a student and a teacher making a connection, a spark firing and a student realizing a concept, a pivotal, important concept. It, it nothing, nothing can replace that. And we shouldn't be trying to replace that. We should be trying to create more opportunities for that moment to happen, right? So I think AI into the classroom as assistive tools that get rid of complex but repetitive and time-consuming actions for teachers so that they can spend more time sitting down with students. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, the, you know, that helps to re-engage teachers. I think that just makes your job more fulfilling, right? Sitting around making sure names match on a roster it's necessary because our systems are imperfect, but that's not fun. But sitting down one-on-one with a student and and walking them through a concept and seeing them get it for the first time and seeing that confidence build in the student of, you know, that moment of, we've all been there where you're like, I can do anything. I just mm-hmm. learned this. I can mm-hmm. do anything. Mm-hmm. That's what you're in the business for. Um, that's what you, well, it's not a business. That, that's what you're a teacher for, right? That, mm-hmm. That's why we're educators. And um so I think the, uh, the, uh, the the potential to create more of those moments, especially for underserved and underrepresented groups, it's it's huge. We yeah. have to make the right decisions, though. Well, if if uh, today you were my teacher um, 
And this was the hour, this was my office hours with you. AI did me a great service this morning by helping propel our conversation into a place where I understand a whole lot more about, uh, you know, put differently, this is exactly the conversation I wanted to have. And so, um, so it was extremely meaningful to me. The AI helped us get here. <laughs> uh, help me get here as a learner, and I hope it was uh, rewarding for you on on your side of the dialogue. And Eric, I Absolutely. I can't thank you enough for being here. I hope we get to have more conversation, and I wish you continued luck. And you know, it should be fun and exciting work. The work that you're doing. Uh, I hope I hope the coming years are as rewarding as they should be for you. I really appreciate that. I have no doubt they will be um, next time. And hopefully it's soon we'll get together and just talk more about uh, classic rock from uh, <laughs> the East Coast. Great. It has been an absolute pleasure. And I'm excited for you know the rest of your arc as you interview other guests and uh, and kind of we talk through AI. It's it, I, I learn a lot every time I listen um, as well. So really looking forward to, to future episodes and um, chatting again. Huge thanks, Eric. Have a great one. Thank you so much, Mark. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy. A guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.